This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. The uh, special guest today, I just want to say a few words about her. Uh, I've known her since I was in my early 20s. Wow. Um, And if you followed the group, the Clayton Brothers, the first, we made a, a really, her contribution was fantastic on the record. The rest of it is embarrassing. We call it, we call it the pink record. It's the first recording that the Clayton Brothers ever made, and I don't know why the hell Concord Records decided that pink would be a good color for us. <laughs> so, um, but my brother had been working with her uh, in the LA area for quite quite a bit, and said, "I got just the piano player for us." And how right he was. Uh, she has gone on to be a very very prolific conductor and arranger is an amazing pedagogue with a golden touch. When she touches students, they stay touched. They really are motivated by her and excited by all that she does. Um, She is a mother of two and has really had a lot of firsts in in her life as a composer and as a pianist, uh, including uh, many things that have to do with being an African-American female in this business and in this town. Uh, so it's, I'll let her tell you about all of those things, but we're really, really proud of her. Uh, we being musicians in general and we being jazz musicians, uh, all of us are just so honored to have her with here today. Uh, but there's somebody else that can say a few more words about her, so I won't um, take that light away from him. Please welcome our own Chris Gordino. He's going to. Good afternoon. Um, <clears throat> I know that all of us have had really powerful experiences of music and musicians, sometimes revelatory. Um, so I'm going to tell you one about that I had about uh, today's guest speaker. Some years ago, I'm, I was in a popular jazz club as a fan <clears throat> and a listener. Um, I had been attending many nights that month. Um, there was a consistent lineup of just stellar leaders and musicians, not to be missed, if one could help out. Um, a less fortunate consistency in all this music making was the piano. Um, I listened in as some really, really talented musicians brought their gifts to the stage. It wasn't out of tune, but somehow something something just was missing and you could the limits of the instrument were audible. When our guest speaker sat at this instrument with the same intonation the same microphone placement. I couldn't take my ears off the sound. What she brought to the piano and what she 
brought out of the piano was <clears throat> luminous. Did she tame it? Um, I'm thrilled she's here this afternoon with us. Thank you. Please give an ASMAC welcome to a fine, fine soul, Miss Patrice Rusher. so very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chris. It's really my honor to be here among my own. And um, there were so many different um, things that ran through my head in terms of um, how to craft, you know, the, the little presentation. And it's not as often that I would have the opportunity to address you to speak to you. So I'm gonna do that first and take some questions and we'll just kind of let things flow. But um, I wanted to, again, say thanks for the invitation to be here and I'm feeling very good about being here. <coughs> Arrangers and composers were present, the unsung heroes and heroines. Um, as a composer and arranger, I noticed that we have and we are facing a dilemma. We're struggling with the changes in our industry. It's bigger than the demise of record companies and budget cuts. It's more serious and more deep than the questions surrounding fees and pay scales. It has to do with the perceived value of our skill set as composers and arrangers. And I think one of this collective's purposes is to encourage emerging arrangers and composers in their development, in our development. I tell my students, you have to love music and what you choose to do with it so much that you would do it for nothing. You do it for the joy and the feeling it gives you to create, to color, to hear it play. It's that important to your soul. And we here in this room know that there are many ways to acquire the knowledge to be a composer or orchestrator, but none more intensely rewarding or revealing than to write it and then hear it played. Many of us have had the opportunity to participate in projects which by their very nature, uh, such as television or film, the deadlines are there and we, they create a situation where relatively soon after you've written it, you get to hear it. If you're not so worn out after the amazing obstacle course one must handle in trying to secure the gig, followed by the stresses and strains of meeting the typically short, short writing schedule on the too, too tight budget, you might discover certain aspects of your writing which hint at style and the accomplishment of being creative within the preconceived box and parameters. You get to hear it played at least once, and I like to call this the grand experience. It is the greatest teacher of them all, and we never ever outgrow the need to have this grand experience. But what about the music we write as composers, which isn't necessarily designed for television or film or the record uh, or, the, or the arrangement that we do? What about the, that aspect of what we're about? 
What are the compositions that are born out of simply the desire and the need to write and stretch? What about expression? How, how encouraging is it when the complement and full palette of the instrument called the orchestra is consistently compromised? We've all been there. Some of us are there now. When the value of the expression of the composer has to be modified because it's too many players. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that budget isn't a valid or legitimate concern, but I am saying that this idea of limitation has become a major roadblock which seems to never ever go away. Does it not shape the every thought we have before we write our first note of the piece? Instead of what do I want to say, it's what do I have to work with? When people want to hear a great pianist play, they make arrangements to provide a concert grand piano. It's not a toy, it's not half size or modified, it's a piano. The piece could be interpreted with something less, I suppose, in the hands of a skilled pianist. It would probably sound fine. But it does not work like that with the composer and the arranger and his or her instrument, the orchestra or the band. So back to our dilemma. Do we continue to let the value of orchestral music or that of the large ensemble, chamber orchestras, jazz big band, concert bands, choirs, become more and more compromised to the point that we, as perpetual students of the art of music, composition, orchestration, and arranging, lose our best teacher and our best classroom? Is the grand experience doomed to be demeaned and just fall by the wayside? The value of your skills and their contributions to the art of music is at the root of why ASMAC and other composers' collectives to the art of music is at the root. We must continue, is what I want to say. We must continue. And in this country, we need to fight the fight for composers and orchestrators and arrangers to come out of the background and on occasion collectively say, hey, it doesn't happen without us. We need to find ways to get our works played, recorded. We need to continue to pool our resources and share important and valuable information that can stimulate and enhance that within each of us that makes it okay to spend the long hours in the solitary moments, putting our innermost feelings or points of view into our music. In the face of the huge leaps in technology, which have been both a blessing and a curse, our knowledge and crafts are still needed. Our palate has been extended, and our knowledge still makes the difference between good and great, moving or mundane. But to hear it back, to hear it played. This is what we value, and this is the thing we must protect the most. It informs us, it shows us our way, and it is as important to the composer as breath is to life. So I stand here today to remind myself and all of us to continue to claim who we are and be about our business of composing, arranging, conducting, orchestrating music. Not just that 
not just the music that helps you put your food on the table, but that which feeds your soul and challenges you to just go for it. Let us continue to organize readings, share in the expense of a recording session of our other works, organize the production of live concerts of new music, and by all means lobby and lobby hard with our colleagues who are great players. They must help us and they do support our efforts. They have a stake in this too. For without the song, there is no singing. In conclusion, I just want to say that we are all in a place in history where we must think differently. We are all having to address music with an eye towards its promotion and its perpetuation through commerce. We should have as watchful an eye on its content, its relevance, its quality. We can never relinquish what we know as the power of great music, written well, performed well, and presented well. The power is to move, to heal, to inspire people to greater heights. So if only for today, we should relish in our greatness. We honor the blessing of our great gifts, and we celebrate the value of our unique creative platform as composers and arrangers. Thank you. So I'd like to open up the, well, you can, I can't call it a meeting. It's not a meeting. It's a gathering of family yeah. for questions or comments or anything like that. Yes. What about you? What about me? I want to know all about you. You want to know? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> okay. So here's what I do. Uh, I'm a pianist, as you know, and um, I wanted to be a film composer. That's what I thought I wanted to be. I grew up at a time when I was never without television and radio was always on and my folks belonged to the Columbia Record Club and so we got music of all kinds every month and I listened to everything and I was enamored with the little box called television. I wanted to be in there. And I didn't necessarily need to be on there as a personality, but I was hearing the music of my favorite shows and and um, identifying with the emotional connection uh, with visuals and music. So early on, I really wanted to do that. But in, on my way there, I was also playing the piano. I learned I played classical music and uh, got turned on to jazz officially in uh, high school. I was hearing it, but I took it for granted. My parents, big jazz lovers. And so I heard it all the time, but I took it for granted. I didn't understand what it was. And then I went to this school in South Central Los Angeles called Locke High School, L-O-C-K-E. And the teachers there were very progressive in their thinking. This is post-Watts riots. And so they were really rebuilding an attitude in the community among the young that we mattered and that we needed to strive for excellence just because. And we learned almost everything we learned, um, those of us who were artistically inclined, through the vehicles that would provided us with music, through band, through orchestra, through the jazz band, through the choirs. We learned history, 
of this country. We learned the contribution of uh, people who looked like us in terms of the music. And it gave us a sense of pride and it allowed for us to go out into other parts of Los Angeles, other parts of the, of the, of the nation, ultimately, and hold our head, heads up because we had not only something to contribute and, uh, and share, but we also learned how important it is to listen and to absorb information. Am I right, Jan? This is Jan Cherry. She was there. She went with me. And that knowledge, I think, gave us a certain sense of openness and appreciation for a lot of things. And so I didn't know what kind of music specifically I wanted to do. I wanted all of it. And I <coughs> attempted to craft a career that would allow for me to experience all of it. And uh, I did some studio work for a while with a studio musician. And uh, I was seen at a jazz festival one year and that really was the beginning of what began the trajectory of my career. Um, played the Monterey Jazz Festival as a high school student in 1972. The band didn't win, but my combo won. We entered that division and it was a sextet. And uh, I needed money to go to school. I wasn't ready to sign a contract, but I had some offers to sign uh, with a couple of labels. And I was really, really not with that. I did not really want to do it and sort of fought against it uh, until my parents uh, said, well, listen, you know, if there's a little bit of money in it and it's not too long term, we could use the hell. <laughs> so uh, I was going to go on to USC, which I did do. And I was a music education major, which was the deal I had to make with my parents. And this is when I found out that composers were not that highly regarded by the general public. <laughs> my parents, when I said, well, they said, well, what are you going to major in? And I said, composition. And my father said, and your real job would be? <laughs> so, but they were, they had already had the, I guess the little talk that parents have behind closed doors when you announce that you're going to, you want to be a musician. <laughs> And, you know, my mom was coming from a place of, well, as long as she's, you know, good at it and happy. And my father, the pragmatist, was like, well, good at it and happy and working. <laughs> so the deal was to be a music ed major. Best decision for me, I think. Because music ed allowed me to be able to see the big picture. And I could take, you know, string class, and I could take woodwinds, and I could take you know, percussion class, you know, where I would have to learn in case I was going to be teaching junior high school. <laughs> so I learned these things, but these were useful skills, especially because I'm also studying orchestration and there is no better teacher than if you try to play the violin. You want to know? Here it is. So, um, on the side, I got with Albert Harris. Uh, a recommendation from Quincy Jones, who had seen me play at one of these high school jazz festivals, and asked me then what did it, that I want to do. And when he heard that I wanted to write, he says, oh, you're going to have to be really good. And I said, OK. He says, no, I mean really good. So I didn't quite know what he meant, but I got that it was 
heavy. So in years, as years progressed and my career as this, you know, recording artist who had this short record deal for money to go to school, the record started taking off and there was uh, the obvious um, promotion on it and stuff like that that made me look like I was very serious about it, which I was. Uh, our paths, Quincy's paths and mine crossed again and I wanted to study with somebody because I was, you know, a music ed major and of course as a music ed major, uh, you can't take orchestration until you're like a junior. That was the rule back then. Real stupid, but that was it. So, uh, he said, well, you should, you should go see uh, Albert. And I called him and I said, well, what book do I need? He said, you don't need a book. I said, well, what I do? He said, just come. And he drew me pictures. He says, okay, this is a tube. And if you put the tube in half, overtone series change, you put holes in the tube, some overtone series changes, change again, now go right. <laughs> that was that week's lesson. Because what he already knew was that I could go to the book and find out the range of instruments. I, mean, I had been in orchestras and bands playing flute. I played flute in junior high school and high school. So it wasn't about that. It was about a concept and a confidence to experience the music by understanding the mechanics and then the and the and therefore the color of the instruments and then go right. And we did. We went through strings like that. We went through the choir of the entire orchestra like that. Little pictures. This is how it works. Took a rubber band, put it across a box. Put his fingers on the C, here's the notes. That's how string instruments work. Go right. <laughs> and I had a vehicle to do it because I had these albums that I was doing and I started writing with the intention of, of getting my stuff together. And it really taught me, and he taught me how to approach it and how to think. And, and the books obviously were a big help. And then being in this town, some of the most amazing arrangers and composers and orchestrators that you could ever hear. And, and, and rather than just take a tone bath at the movies, I'm like, what chord was that? Well, you know, it was very difficult for people to go with me to the movies. <laughs> They're watching the movie and I'm digging the score and why it's working at this point for this to be at that choice against the visual. And I'm looking all this up at the same time that I'm studying music again and piano performance. So, uh, long way around saying, the background that I had prepared me to be able to do just about anything. And it has served me well as a music director for some major television events, like I was music director of the Grammys for three years, and uh, music director of the Emmys for a couple of years, People's Choice Awards and some, and some big shows where you have to draw on so many different kinds of things, comic relief and things like that. Drawing on all of these different dialects of the language of music. And uh, I even had a couple hit records along the way as a singer, okay? No. <laughs> uh, I could sing well enough to perform as as a, as a means by, it was a vehicle, as a means by which I could present my music. I sang on one record and somebody liked it. And then I was asked to do more of that. 
and uh, was always really uncomfortable with that, but I, but I did it because it allowed me a chance to experience and experiment with exactly what I needed, which was to find my personal balance of a certain kind of accessibility with a high artistic aesthetic. And as composers and arrangers, we're asked to do that all the time. That's a part of the consciousness that drives some of our choices in terms of instrumentation, in terms of uh, voicings, in terms of you know the, the, the stylistic nuance and, and uh, specific applications uh, to serve the project or to serve the music is what we do. And the more you are able to go there, I think the more opportunities you have to to work and the and the more successful the project and so and so limitation or or parameters it, it becomes well how creative can I be within the confines of this so film composing was really attractive to me whereas for many people understandably it's handcuffs it was really attractive to me <coughs> there are other aspects that are not so attractive but we get around those too because the limitations or the baggage or the closed-mindedness or the inability to articulate on the part of the of sometimes the other members of what is supposed to be a collaborative effort and a team. We learn to be great diplomats. We learn to be good translators. We learn to understand human beings a little bit and tolerate their inadequacies in terms of the way that they approach us because the music is still bigger and still more important and still what, what we do and our reasons for doing it are our reasons for being. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it and I do those kinds of things that are important to me because people did that for me. That's really it. It changed my life that people would take a moment and do something. Um, you never know. It's sometimes it's life changing for somebody, and the kids, especially, you know, uh, they have this desire to be creative. All of them, you know, they have an innate creativity, and it manifests itself in different ways as 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 their experiences, you know, shape and carve out their lives. But but they're creative and. Our, our schools, you know, it's no secret, you know, in some ways our schools have, have, have just, the light has just gone on like, oh, art is important, huh? And, you know, for a while there, we were gonna lose it. And it's part of what makes us human, having it and being able to show people, by example, you know, to have the experience of being able to recognize good, better, best, to find beauty in their lives and to give them a way to go to that place when their lives get tough. It's, it's, it's about the music, but more than anything else, it's about being able to experience something that allows them to take themselves out of where, they, where their condition has them, maybe, and give them an opportunity to just experience and feel. And for most of, most of the kids, especially, 
it has the ability to pick them up and, and help them. And a lot of them turn to music, some turn to sports, some turn to dance, some turn to, you know, all kinds of other things to get busy rekindling and refiring that aspect of joy, which sometimes is missing in their day to day. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. The Men in Black story. Yes. This is. I wrote this song uh, with uh, co-writer Freddie Washington, bass player Freddie Washington, and a young lady Terry McFadden. We wrote a piece in 1982 called Forget Me Nots. Sending you forget me nots to help you to remember. Some of you may have heard that before. Anyway, this song became a big hit for me. Uh, but it always had a tough time because the record company first rejected it when I did it. They were like, well, you know, we don't know what we're going to do with this. And uh, this was my first true entree into, okay, if you believe it, then you need to support it. And um, we've got our pooled our resources and we got some money to hire an independent promotion just to get it off the ground. And this record took off. And I, and I never looked back. It just kept going. And I was nominated for a Grammy that year. I didn't win, but I was nominated uh, in, the, in the vocal category. Isn't that amazing? For this song. Fast forward 15 years maybe. And uh, I'm at home, and I get a package in the mail from Columbia Pictures. Oh, cool. Open it up, and it's a cassette. I remember cassettes. There was a cassette in there and a letter. And I, I used to, obviously, because I was so interested in film, I would go to the movies a lot. And I had seen the trailer to this movie called Men in Black that was going to have Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And I was like, oh, yes, I'll be there. I want to see this. They didn't have the music. You know, it's typical with trailers. You don't always have the music that's actually in the movie. It's, it's a month out before the movie is being released. But I got this thing and it says, uh, Dear Miss Russian, please note that we have used a small sampling of your song, Forget Me Nots, as part of the theme for Men in Black, a movie starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones for theatrical release. Please accept your one-time payment of $2,000. You may call this number and talk to this person. So I put the cassette in the machine. $2,000? It's the, it's the track. It's the, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm playing on it. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, 16 bars with no vocal and looped and then this new rap on top of it. And the melody of the hook is the same. I just ain't singing you, forget me not. You're the men in black. I was okay, wait. So I didn't know what to do. I called my attorney and I, he said, make a copy of the tape, send me a copy of the tape. Uh, we could have a copyright issue here. And this was at the beginning of sampling in terms of there being any kinds of rules to follow or people that need to get paid and stuff like this. So there, 
it still it was fuzzy. It still wasn't locked down, you know, in terms of what was supposed to happen. So about two weeks later, my attorney said, "Well, I've been doing a little research, and this is a this is not a sample. You should own part of this new copyright. You should participate as a writer in this new copyright. The three of you are writers of this." new piece, and that's the way I think we should approach it. And I said, okay. And he says, now here's the downside. They, they might try to say no, and if they do, you need to be willing to walk away completely. And I said, well, okay. You want to run that past me as far as why? And he said, because it's not a sample, and we're going to great lengths to have to explain and put together really legislation that ultimately will protect you and you know you this is cutting edge. I don't want to be cutting edge, I want the money. <laughs> so he says, well that's gonna be the way we're gonna do it. If if you want to follow that, I think that, that would be that's that would be my best advice and if we if we win it, you win big. Amen. I said, well okay. You know, I respect professionals and you're always done right by me. So I said, okay, let's go that way. So, of course, Columbia, absolutely not. What's in it for Will? Excuse me? And I love Will Smith, and he's, I, he knows about this story, so I'm not talking about out of turn, but at that moment, with all due respect, I really didn't care what was in it for Will. Will got paid to do the movie. We just needed to work this out. So they said no, and so we said, okay, well then take it out of the film. And that's what I heard at the end of the, on the speakerphone. <laughs> so it was like, well, the movie's about to be released and everything. I'm looking at my attorney, he went, and he said, so we'll have to get back to you. He says, okay. About two days later, there was the paperwork, and it had all of our names on it as composers of this song. And we've been sharing in the royalties, and the record went quadruple platinum, and the film did gangbusters worldwide. All I need is the ride. If I can do Men in Black the ride, we're all good. <laughs> but it is really, it was an it was an eye opener for me, and because it worked out so well, um, you know, I think that it did have. In a small way, it may have played a, 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 a role in there being now clear or more clear legislation and more clear rules and certainly uh, a, a point of departure for there to be discussions about the use of pre-existing music. It's not, we don't want you to use it. No, please use it. But just realize that the creators of that music and the people who own the publishing and the copyrights deserve to be contacted and, and ultimately uh, have their fair share. And the longer you wait to contact them, the more difficult it can be and the bigger your share can be because it's retroactive, you know, to record one or movie, movie opening day one or whatever they use to calculate. Um, you know, your share, so. That's, that's now, though, you bring up an interesting point, Jeff, because in the new model 
of the way things are now with record companies, which are almost non-existent. Uh, the songwriters with downloading, etc. It's the, the songwriters uh, are left holding the short end of the stick. Okay, the artists, you know, now create their own music. You know, a lot of them don't have record companies. They fund their own uh, CDs and they go and they write a lot of music. Some of it's not always good, and a lot of it is written so that they don't have to pay anybody. But if they use your song, how do you get paid? And that's a, a big part of what the new model did not address, that we are all in the performing rights societies are really, really working hard to establish uh, how creators of music are going to be compensated for their intellectual property. You guys are deep, man. You're asking these questions that lead you all. <laughs> Yes. So, before we play it, or any of it, that little excerpts for you to hear different things that I do. Um, if, if I have any, um, if I have a reputation as far as a writer is concerned, it's that I do a lot of different, I write a, a lot of different styles. And I mean, that's not new to us, that's what we do. But uh, I had an opportunity uh, within the last eight years or so to exercise a little bit more of my symphonic desires and need to occasionally not be told we can't afford strings. Um, and in writing for uh, orchestra, I, I did one piece and just entered a reading. That's why these orchestral readings are really important to us as composers. It rekindles, you know, our 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 energies when we feel like, okay, am I only gonna ever see like six and eight and nine people in the studio at the same time, and lately more like three or four? So I kind of rebelled against that by having, you know, we're gonna write me a symphony and I'm gonna use everything. So I started writing this symphony and I got through the first movement, it was very cathartic, and I was like, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just wanting to use everything, the full palette. I had every intention of finishing this symphony. Got about three-fourths of the way through that first movement. I was like, okay, I'm okay. I'm healed. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard work. Nobody's ever gonna play it, and no one's ever gonna hear it. And I was in the process, literally of boxing it up, getting ready to put it in my garage with the other 30 or 40 pieces of unfinished music. And I got this phone call from a colleague. Now this is how important networking and being around like-minded people is, is for you. Um, he said, what you doing? I said, I am boxing up the first unfinished movement of my symphony. He said, what you doing that for? Why'd you finish it? I said, because nobody's ever going to hear it. I'm, I'm okay now. I got it out of my system. I wrote for everybody. I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. He says, no, no, you should enter it in a reading, in an orchestral reading. I, what? I didn't know about this at all. He says, oh, yeah. He says, call the American Composers Forum in uh, Minnesota and find out when their next composer reading is and send in the first movement. 
So I, I did it. I, I sent it in under a, an anonymous name, just in case. <laughs> and it, it won a spot. They, they review the score, and then they say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll read it for you. So it's, this happened to be members of the uh, Minneapolis Chamber Orchestra and different people, like a pickup orchestra, but really good players, and they played this first movement. Oh, that's what I mean in terms of the great experience. You hear it back. Now, I've heard my music back before, but not like that. And not, not a situation uh, that was in a different, a different kind of platform than I typically was working in. Small ensembles, jazz orchestras, jazz band, uh, something like this, or TV orchestra band. And so this was an experience for me that I'll never forget. And I went home and finished the whole thing in about, you know, six weeks. I did two more movements and entered another reading. This time I put my name on it. And this was with the Detroit Symphony. And they played, uh, they read Symphonia, which I'll play uh, some excerpts. And it really opened the door because at those readings, a lot of times, music art, art, uh, artistic directors of orchestras, principal players of, of orchestras come to just hear new music and see who's on the horizon. And I received uh, several commissions from that experience. And when I think now that I was ready to box it up and put it in the closet just because I didn't know, it really um, speaks to me and I can't, uh, I, I, I can't say how important it is to just, you better talk about what you're doing because somebody might know what to do next and that could change everything. Are you queued up so that you can play a little symphonia, which is I think... Yes.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That's why I mentioned in my in my talk that just from a personal standpoint, you know, it's good to 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 be busy and know, understand, and it's a gift I think to know what to do, to know how to work, and to be craft enough of a craftsperson to be able to work in different circumstances. But at the end of the day, we all want an opportunity to not have to worry about, well, this is going to get played on the radio, or did the producer like it? We really want to have an opportunity to um, balance the other stuff with personal expression. And I'm really fortunate as a jazz musician, too, because I get to touch down on that a lot. Uh, in maybe different kind of dosage and smaller increments, but nevertheless, it, I'm, I have the constant reminder every time I play with people, uh, particularly when, I, when I'm playing jazz and there's spontaneous composition going on all the time, um, you realize that, you know, you, you, we need that. We need to have the balance of, I guess we could call it, a controlled abandon. <laughs> Where you just, you know, you are okay, but you're gonna go for it because you can and you want to. And it's just a part of learning to be in the moment and, and, uh, and to live in the moment and, and to relish that and to, you know, resonate that in, in what you do. You know, we have the ability to write it down, to record it, and re-experience it or share that experience over and over again with other people. But the very first time it happens, the, comp the, 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 the art in what we do is present. And uh, there it is. <laughs>